Welcome to the Ancient Paths Podcast. My name's Kevin. This is episode three. So we made it to three episodes so far, so I guess we're doing pretty good. <laughs> so this uh, this episode we're going to be uh, looking into hearing God in Scripture, uh, which is something kind of near and dear to my heart. Uh, this is something I've kind of had questions about and I've looked into and studied for, you know, you know quite a few years now. Um God's Word's always been kind of a source of comfort and inspiration to me, like I guess for all Christians, uh, but I've definitely uh, felt and experienced God in pretty profound ways by meditating on Scripture and and getting a sense of His heart through it, you know. So we're going to talk about that, that Scripture is a spiritual thing as well as it is information, and we really have to balance the two together, or we, it's either too academic or it becomes uh I don't know, too mystical, for lack of a better word, and people get kind of crazy and think crazy things about the scriptures or, or what they th- they think they hear God saying to them through the scriptures. And so it's not really an either or, it's kind of a both and. We got to have the theology and we got to have, uh, you know, the encounter with God in the text itself. So that's what we're going to be talking about today a little bit. Um, but the first point is scripture is a source of hearing God's voice in its overall narrative, theology, and sacred history, as well as the immediate personal voice of God to the reader. In this sense, the scripture as, as sacred history and theology speak directly to us in our present circumstances through God's personal voice. So that's kind of the idea. It's it, like I just said uh, a couple of seconds ago, it's about marrying you know, the, the intellect with what we know it's factual and logical about the Bible the different intricacies of history and and you know languages and grammar and context and things, but with the living voice of God who still speaks through that to us. So let's define a couple of things. What do we what do we mean by narrative theology and sacred story? Narrative. Uh, and this is kind of my definitions of them. They may not be as precise as some textbook you may get about it, but uh, I guess bear with me. Narrative. The main story is the main story of Scripture and how this main story took shape. And the main story, of course, is you know, creation, fall, the fall, Israel, Jesus as the Messiah, his life, death, and resurrection, and his enthronement, his return, and history's consummation. It is the historic context of the Bible, and the key to discerning the narrative is the person of, and life of Jesus. He is the entire point of the Bible. And so by narrative, we mean the over- the big story, the overarching story of Scripture, like its whole point. And its whole point is to connect us to God through God's actions and history. So it's about Jesus. He's the whole focal point of the Bible. So we can't really read the Bible and understand it outside of Jesus being its you know, main focus and, and the main context. Uh, there's a There's been trends in Western theology for a, a long time now, at least maybe a century and a half, if not more, about isolating things and kind of taking away that broader narrative and broader scope. You know, things are sort of chopped up and deduced so much that we lose the overall big picture, which is what the narrative of the scripture is, because the scripture is telling a story, and we forget that. And it's a story of God breaking into history. So if we notice in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's God speaking through events, like especially in Israel's history, God speaking through, uh, you know, coming, you know, appearing to Moses on the mount, you know, in the desert, through the burning bush, you know, just, just appearing and showing up and saying, you know, that He is and He's His name is I am. You know, that's what He did, and He engineered the, 
you know, the Exodus and the events in the Torah and the conquest of the land and etc. It was all God revealing who he was through uh, the history of Israel. And that's why it still speaks to us today. It's not an isolated thing. It still transcends that historical period and framework and speaks to us now. And that's what narrative is. Theology this is this is like you know readings of the scriptures. So like a theological reading, like we just talked about the narrative reading, which is looking for the big picture, the big story. The theological reading is the meaning behind the narrative itself. So it's the the ideas about God that are communicated to us through what God did in history. So it's like a big picture view, but it's it's focused on the person of God, not just on the historical events that He did which is kind of, I guess, more what a narrative is like. The, the, it's less thematic and more personal, personalized to looking at God himself. It's the meaning behind the narrative, or more so what the narrative has to say about the nature, character, and desire of God. Theology is the discerning of who God is by, by and through the text. Scripture in its entirety becomes a lens in which we try to view God. It is his revelation of himself. Otherwise, we wouldn't know who he is. And that's true. We wouldn't know who the God of the Bible is without... You know, God just demonstrating who he was through his interactions with people over the course of time. It isn't like God just showed up to somebody and told them to write down a bunch of stuff about him. God was coming into history to communicate who he, who he is to us theologically so we kind of understand more about him. That he's other than, he's holy, that he's good, he's righteous, he's just. All those characteristics of who God is are conveyed by his actions and what he says about himself through scripture. And that's the idea of, you know, getting our theology, our ideas and thoughts about God from the Bible. Like they don't come outside of the Bible. Like that's not our first place to start. Our first place to start is the Bible itself. And why we're talking about all these things is because they all kind of work together to hear God in the text. So we'll, we'll kind of talk about that more as we go. And the last sort of category of, of a, through addressing here is, is what's called sacred story. Uh, it could be said that this is our approach to scripture as the marrying of narrative and theology into its final form. We approach the text as sacred because of who and what it reveals. If we do not approach it in this sense, we will not understand God's revelation of himself through it, meaning the Bible. We cannot read scripture like any other book. We approach it allowing the Holy Spirit to unlock it to us. Sacred story is synonymous with tradition. It's interpretation of the text which the apostles passed on to us. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. We'll read that in a second, but well, that's the idea. It's like, it's a sort of inheritance we have as Christians that the Bible is a collection of, of God's actions and there's and the church viewed it a certain way. Like they saw Jesus in that. He was revealed in both the Old and the New Testaments and being the main story of the scriptures itself. Jesus, Jesus isn't a side note and he's not uh, like an afterthought. He's the whole point. The whole point of, of, of God re- rescuing Israel, of, of demonstrating his acts and power and, and all those things was about that culminating in the appearance of the Messiah to save everyone. You know, but he used a physical people and a physical nation uh, named Israel. And so that's the point of the Bible, and that's that sacred story that we carry. It's, it's this uh, final revelation of the character and nature of God. And Paul uh, talks about that. And, you know, 
<clears throat> we could get into all sorts of debates about what sacred history and whatever means, but I guess I'm just sort of boiling it down to his statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. That's like the kernel, if you will, of of the gospel. I mean, theologians call that the kergima, or it's like the, the seed or the essential nature of the gospel, like the most compact definition is kind of what they mean by that. Uh, Paul says in this text, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so Paul is telling the, the Corinthians, you know, they've, they've heard all this crazy stuff uh, about the gospel since he kind of helped create the community and he departed and he went on to start other communities in the ancient world. But in Paul's absence, they, these other teachers came in and kind of, you know, threw the wagon out of balance, so to speak. And Paul's kind of dialing it back. Okay, this is the important stuff. This is what I've received from Christ, from the apostles. And this is the core of the faith, that it's about Christ. That it's about Christ breaking into the world and, and being who he is, his life, death, and resurrection. And that's according to the scriptures, which by scriptures he means the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is about Christ. And that's how the early church read the Bible, you know, because in the beginning they just had the Old Testament. They wrote the New Testament as it kind of went along, and it was finally kind of codified towards the end of the first century. So this is what they mean. And why this stuff is important, why knowing how to, you know, how to read the text as a narrative, how to read it theologically, and, and know that when those two elements come together, it forms the sacred story. We have to know the context of the Bible to hear God's voice in it. Otherwise, we can be misled and, and think God uh, is telling us something that's completely out of bounds with what he revealed in the Bible itself. You know, and that's how cults form. That's how crazy stuff happens because people don't know the context. They're just listening to whatever someone tells them. And not that we should approach everybody with, you know, a critical spirit that we should be out to get them and, and tear them what they say down, because all of us have imperfect theology. No one has it all figured out. But the core, uh, the core like, context of the faith as far as, like, empirical beliefs, that is that it's, it's, it's summarized in that passage in 1 Corinthians, that that's sort of what it entails. So when we hear God's voice to us personally, when we read the Bible, it'll always be that same God, the one who's revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He'll, it'll, that voice will sound like Jesus and be like Jesus and, ha- and carry the presence of Jesus. It also produce in us the life of Jesus in us. So the characteristics, the nature of Jesus will be made in us by hearing that voice and listening to that voice and obeying it. That's how the voice of God works. Uh, God's voice isn't going to tell us to like jump off a cliff or, or he's not going to tell us to rob a bank or something crazy. That's not how God's voice works. You know, that's completely opposite to the voice of God. And all of this, you know, we're learning how to hear that voice because it's a calm, steady, peaceful voice. And he speaks in different ways, but specifically in the Bible, we'll look more into this as we go through this podcast, but, uh, there'll be times when we read the text where we just 
sense of God's presence and peace on something that he wants us to get. You know, it may be something even directly to us in our circumstances. Like when we read the Psalms, David may be talking about running from Saul and lamenting like, oh God, why have you forsaken me? This, you know, this guy is trying to kill me, basically. That's like the historical context. That's the narrative. But God's personal voice to us through that now, God can be reassuring us that he's with us for whatever trial we're going through. We don't have to be running, you know, in the desert trying to escape Saul from killing us to understand that. Or for God to use that to speak to us. You know, that's that's kind of what that's about. So it doesn't have to necessarily be this the same context, but it'll it'll produce the same things. For David, God uh, he felt God's presence in the wilderness and knew God was with him through, you know, something very extreme. But we can be going through a loss of a job or going through hardships in a marriage or, or a lack of a marriage or whatever it is we're going through the personal day-to-day stuff all human beings deal with. But God can use the text, can use history, sacred story, to encourage us in the present now. That's why some people say the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. And that's that's kind of true. Uh, There's an ancient culture we kind of have to have somewhat of a reference for to really understand the text and study it. To hear God's voice in it, it'll dovetail and it'll, it'll create something kind of holistic that gives us life. Like, we have a tendency in, uh, to separate, you know, understanding facts and history and the academic nature of the Bible from the spiritual side of things, you know, but really those things have to marry together to create a healthy spiritual life. There's nothing wrong with learning the background and facts about the Bible. But we really need to hear God in the Bible because that's the whole point of the Bible. The whole point of the Bible is to know God. It's not just to know a bunch of facts, you know. But they're married together. Um, because going back to this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what people kind of call a creed. This is the beginning of what eventually became the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which is, you know, a lot of liturgical churches will say that in their services and stuff. But this basically, when they when people would ask Christians, like, what do you guys believe? You know, it was kind of summarized in, in that passage. And then later on, it was expounded in the creeds because more questions came up. Like, what's the nature of Christ? Is he, is he God? Is he man? Is he something in the middle? You know, like, you know, what is he? How does he work? You know, all those things, people have questions about it because people would come out later in the subsequent centuries after the early church and, and say, no, Jesus was a man who, who God just elected to become God. You know, that was, there was an ancient heresy like that, or that he was, uh, the God, the father, God, the son, and God, the spirit are just the same person, just in different forms and not really different people, you know, personalities in the Trinity. So there's all these kind of like muddy, confusing things that would happen in in the subsequent centuries. And that's why things had to get more defined. And that's what the term creed is about. It's how do we define the mystery of the faith? How do we, how do we express that to other people? And that's sort of what it's about. It's not, you know, the, the word creed isn't a bad nineties rock band, you know, it's about, it's about like knowing who God is and stuff and, and what the church believed. But that all works together with hearing his immediate voice to us now. You know, like, this is the God we worship. It's the God in the creeds. It's the God in the, in the Bible. It's not just a God without a context who wants you to, like, to do DMT and trip into outer space or something. You know, like, that's a lot. there's a lot of stuff like that out there. And that's not the Christian God. That's, like, something else. And that's why knowing that 
having that context in place is important to hear God's voice personally, just so we don't get misled. So that's a, a factor in discernment. Because even the apostles, you know, they always warned against the misunderstanding of Scripture and, this misu- and the misuse of Scripture, you know, and the resulting heresies of, of the gospel that happened, you know, in the ancient world, you know, which we were just talking about. Peter, see, Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 18, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and the day of eternity, and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so Peter's encouraging them to, you know, to know the text and to know, you know, like the the basic kernel of truth, which is those early creeds. You know, like to know that it's about Christ crucified according to the scriptures. He rose again according to the scriptures. Everything Paul was talking about, First Corinthians fifteen, that that nutshell, that that early summary of the gospel. Like, know that stuff because you're not going to get misled by all these people coming and saying all these other things that are contrary to it. This is the key to discerning God's voice to us in the text. The immediate personal voice of God to us won't be contrary to the narrative, theology, and sacred story of Scripture handed down to us in its primitive form i.e. its oldest and most general sense, which is uh, that above passage in 1 Corinthians 15. So you must be schooled in knowing this, in addition to being able to hear God's uh, present voice as well. Peter says as much in the above passage. These elements work together in Scripture holistically. The point of all these elements is to know God on a personal level. So that's the goal, is to know God personally. And that's the point of hearing God in Scripture. So knowing the context, it's like, Christ is like the water in the cup, but we have to have the cup to hold the water, which is the scriptures. You know, it's context, it's history, the language, the grammar, all that stuff that goes into interpreting the Bible. That's the cup. It's the vessel that, because it's, it's the events, it's what God did that provide the context of who God is. And so the water in the cup, though, is what we have to drink of, and that's Christ. But the cup holds the water, which is the scripture. So it kind of works that way. We can't have one without the other. You know, we can't have encounters with Christ who isn't the actual Christ, because Jesus has a context. You know, and then there are false Christs out there. There's false gospels, and there are heresies. You know, that's something that we don't talk about so much, but it's true. You know, we always think of like uh, the Inquisition or some stupid stuff the church did in the past when we think about things like heresy. It's not about, you know, killing your enemies and subjugating people or whatever. It's there's the true gospel, which is about Christ emptying himself and coming in the flesh and dying. And then there's all these other false gospels out there and you name it from Gnostic Jesuses who were like magicians to, you know, modern day, you know, Prosperity Jesus says they'll give you what, whatever you want if you just say the right things or give the right amount of money. I mean, that's all heresy. You know, the real Jesus does what he wants because he's God, and we just agree with that. But he won't be the Jesus that's not in the scriptures. Like, the Jesus we worship is the Jesus who came in the flesh, who died, 
and rose again. And that's the, the, that's the God we're trying to hear through the text, you know. So that's the lens we're trying to read the text with. Uh, so we'll talk a little about hearing and discerning God's voice to us in Scripture. We talked about kind of the cup. We talked about the vessel. We talked about the tools to have context for the voice of God. But let's talk about hearing the voice of God a little bit and discerning it. The text as well as our faith is a spiritual thing. We come to the text with a prior assumption that God will meet us. This is an eternal, internal idea given to us by the scriptures themselves, that God speaks to us. We are spiritual as well as physical beings. The part of us that hears the voice of God is that spiritual part. God is, God is a spirit himself and speaks to us through scripture to that aspect of us. And so we kind of inherited through Descartes and through other Enlightenment era philosophers this idea that there's a, a a body and, and soul division, or there's some problem between the two, or there's there's this separation and vast gulf between those two aspects of us. There's the rational, physical part of us, and there's like the, the spiritual part of us that's we can't really comprehend or know very well. And that's not really the worldview of the people that wrote the Bible. The people that wrote the Bible viewed us being just as spiritual as we are physical. And just and both are just as good. Uh, there's no preference for either. But God Himself is spirit, because Jesus says that in John, that God's a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So there's there's an idea that He's the invisible God who is spirit. He's not made of stuff. You know, He's not made of matter. God made matter when He created everything. So matter and the physical is a result of Him. You know, who is invisible and who is immaterial. And so for us, uh, that means that to hear God's voice, it's a spiritual part of us that hears that. It's the deepest part of us, and it's the invisible part of us that hears God's voice. Um, when, when Jesus was walking around in the flesh, he was incarnated, and you know he was the visible, physical word of God who spoke. You know That's what John's talking about in, in the Gospel of John, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, but for us now, you know, Christ, who is the embodied voice of God, who, who is the, the God in flesh, is now at the right hand of God the Father in heaven after his resurrection. And so the Holy Spirit has been poured out to the heart of every believer to hear him now, but the Holy Spirit is a spirit, you know. Uh, so he's the third person of the Trinity who speaks to our spirits, in a sense, to, to hear the voice of God. So we have to acknowledge that there's that part of us, and our culture wants us to deny that, but that's not authentic to the Bible. So, you know, we don't have a neutered faith that tries to downplay the spiritual. I mean, our faith is intensely spiritual, and we only can really know God relationally through our spirits. You know, we can't just intellectually know him, because that's just like knowing facts about somebody. Like, you know, I'm married, so uh, knowing facts about my wife doesn't equate to me like knowing my wife as a person on an intimate emotional level, you know, it's not a heart connection. It's just a head connection only. Uh, but what, what's good is when I know the facts and I know the person. So I know for a fact that she hates bananas, <laughs> just like my dad, you know, like my, my wife and my dad both hate bananas. So uh, Anna's not going to want a banana pudding or a banana pie or something, you know, that's just, you know, and because I know that fact, I know how to relate to her personally on a personal level. I know that she's going to hate that. So I'm not going to, you know, give her that for her birthday, <laughs> you know, 
that's how those things kind of play together and work together. So it's good to know facts, but, you know, connecting to her on a heart level is through relationship, it's through communicating, it's through being in the presence of each other and growing in that. And that's what a relationship is. It isn't just facts. Uh, so we can't, we can't presume that God wants to relate to us the same way because I don't think that's authentic to the Bible. There's, when there's lots of invitations to know God intimately, uh, and that's repeated all throughout the prophets, the writings, the Torah, and the New Testament. You know, Jesus himself at the end of John is talking, you know, John 14, 15, 16, 17. It's all about you know, being connected on a deep way personally to God through Jesus. So that's an inheritance we have, and that's part of the sacred story. Uh, and God's voice will have a certain quality, as a peaceful and steady sense of his presence attached to it. It will evoke deep inner feelings of love, joy, peace, and conviction, which is still conveyed in a deep sense of divine love. So God will convict us when there's something off in our lives, and there's, you know, we're having a compulsive sin issue, uh, when we have done something in our blindness and our, or our ignorance that has hurt others or ourselves, the Lord will bring that up, but the Lord brings it up in love. Like the Lord never condemns or beats us down for being human. He knows our frame and weakness, according to Psalm 103, but he has grace for us and he makes us into saints. He makes us into his image and he does that through his voice and us obeying his voice. So when he corrects us, he corrects us out of love. He doesn't correct us out to hurt us or condemn us. Uh, so that's how we can kind of, uh, you know, distinguish and discern God's correction from uh, other voices of, of condemnation, you know, which, you know, uh, evil spiritual forces or ourselves for sure do that to us sometimes. They want to, and condemnation tends to keep us in the place where we're at. It's like, you know, it's a voice saying, you know, you're always going to be a failure. You're always going to, you know, struggle with this, there's no hope, and why try? You know, that's that's a voice of condemnation. It's, it's a voice of shame and a voice of uh, affliction to keep us in a certain place. God's voice doesn't do that. God's voice always gives life and always sets free. You know, so when God convicts us, it's to set us free. It creates peace within us, and at times we will sense God's other thanness and his strength to handle whatever circumstances before us. God's voice will correct us when we are off, which we just talked about. But God's other than this is that sense that he's a being completely other than us, which the biblical word for that is where we get uh, the English word, you know, holy from, you know, it's like God's other than he's beyond creation because he created everything and he's not in a category like any other living being. I mean, he's beyond that stuff. So that's what I mean by God's other than this. It's, it's that sense that, God is God and we're people and he is who he is. You know, that's what holy means, you know. So holy just doesn't mean God's morally perfect, though he is. Uh, but the idea is more so that he is other than exalted above and beyond what we see and what we know. So that's what that means. So there's times when we encounter God's voice so that in his presence, so that'll be conveyed to us because that's who God is. Um, and everything, everything God's voice produces, if it, if it is God's voice, it'll be life. It will produce spiritual vitality in our lives through the good and bad seasons. The spiritual vitality will look like Jesus. It will produce qualities and characteristics like him. God's voice will produce these things in conjunction with his love. 
Feelings of condemnation, destruction, depression are not God's voice. As one matures in Jesus, the person will grow in discernment regarding God's voice. So that's that's sort of the, the litmus test, you know, like what is God's voice and what is our hearing and doing of God's voice, like the practical aspect of it, you know, what does that produce in us? If it's producing, you know, what Jesus looks like, you know, uh, his whole personality that stemmed in faith, hope, and love, and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, all that kind of stuff, that's what God's voice produces. It produces life. It produces kingdom life that looks like his kingdom. Uh, and that's how you can tell a good tree from a bad tree. Jesus always uh, used parables that, in relation to nature of how to discern. Uh, a life is growing in, in the kingdom and hearing God's voice, encountering God, being in God's presence consistently will produce life like a, a blooming tree planted by streams of living water. You know, that's the imagery in Psalm 1. God's, God's words produce things. It's a spiritual thing as well as it is historical factual thing uh, so the end result of God's voice will always produce life it won't produce you know weird cults <laughs> it won't produce crazy stuff it won't produce uh, mean-spirited condemning you know even when people deal with uh, others who are off or misguided we still do it in love because God's spirit does that um, and sometimes we have to correct each other, but we correct each other out of love because we're seeing something in someone that, like if we have a friend who's, uh, you know, being harsh to his wife and kids and, you know, and is destroying his family, if I'm his friend, it, it would behoove me to say, to say something, you know, because I'm seeing something that he may not see. Because uh, sometimes people aren't destroying their families, you know, out of, uh, you know, it's not like they're they're trying to. They just do. They have habits and patterns that of living that just hurt others because they don't know any better. And sometimes, as a friend, you have to step in and say something. So that's the same idea. It's uh, it it's everything's conveyed in love and it produces life. So, uh, a word that isn't from God given to to like if if there is a husband who is destroying his family, a word from the Lord that brings correction would you know, would fix those problems or, you know, they, they would create a situation where the person can grow and mature out of that, where he will cease to do those things and, and walk in, more in God's ways that give life. Um, it, the voice of the voice that is in God would keep the person there and make it 10 times worse. So that's how we kind of know the voice of God and, and other voices. And the nature of God's voice is sometimes different. It's conveyed through different things. Sometimes God's voice can be a word picture or something that is more visual. God uses the imaging faculty we have in our minds as a way to speak to us. But regardless of the means, the signature of God's voice is his presence and what his voice produces in our lives. If we are growing into the picture of Jesus, we are hearing him in the text. If we are becoming more imbalanced and extreme in regards to legalism or permissiveness, or we are becoming more selfish, prideful, given to immorality, or anything that looks like the list of sinful actions in the New Testament, we either we are either disobeying or listening to the wrong voice. This is why the context of Scripture, what God did, is just as important as the personal and experiential aspect of His voice. So uh, that's why it's so important to to know the cup, but to know how to drink uh, the water inside, the nourishment inside. But if we are consistently doing that, it will produce certain effects and changes in us. 
And that's how we can discern. Because there's a lot of people out there saying, God told them to do this, this, and this. Give me money for this, this, and this. And people's lives have been destroyed because there's a lack of discernment. And so, uh, as much as the scriptures you know, compel us to do what's right, also compels us to get wisdom. Uh, and a part of an aspect of wisdom is discerning the voice of God. So uh, I would recommend, hey, you know, get that, <laughs> you know, study the scriptures, know them, know the context and know the voice of God. Spend time practicing uh, his presence and discerning his voice. And we'll talk about, you know, ways to engage with God in that you know, later. Um, so that's, so our culture is more or less secular though. And we're going to kind of talk about the kind of the barriers in our culture and in our own heads sometimes that prohibit us from from listening to his voice and discerning it. Our culture is more or less secular and negates his voice and our ability to hear it. Approaching the text as mere historical facts is not the way the ancients read the Bible. They read it with the Spirit, not without the Spirit, in a cold and merely academic way. And that's the worldview we're talking about. That's the worldview and context of the people that wrote the Bible. So they approached the Bible with certain assumptions. And the main assumption was that God would speak and communicate himself through the text. And also that the text speaks primarily of Jesus. And that and its fulfillment is in Jesus himself. Uh, there's a, a theologian named Hans Borsma. And he's writing about the development of Western thought. And when we get to the 1400s, the 1500s, the 1600s, there's a change in Western thinking about the Bible. Uh, there's a couple of different philosophers like Hobbes and Spinoza that come out and, and kind of change the, the way to interpret the text. And the focus is, is less on hearing God and discerning Jesus in the text. And it's, it becomes more uh, only focused on history and the, and the stuff behind it, in a sense, you know, which maybe making it too simple, but I'll let Borisma say something here. He says, according to Spinoza, therefore the scholarly task was to establish the true meaning of scripture. This was to be accomplished by reason, not ecclesial authority. So he's talking about, you know, the tradition of interpreting the Bible. Human reason has the ability to investigate history. And so scripture should be read historically rather than allegorically. So by allegorically, he means spiritually. So in a personal sense to you, the reader. As a result, Spinoza claimed that scripture must be treated like any other ordinary visible thing. It must be analyzed empirically, and one must not allow higher invisible realities to determine one's natural understanding of the Bible. Matthew Levering describes the basis of Spinoza's interpretive approach as follows. Separated from metaphysical judgment, which metaphysical means the big picture, the big story, the big reason behind what you're reading, uh, separate from metaphysical judgment, scripture can be evaluated on its own terms. The difference with patristic medieval interpretation thus begins with a different understanding of nature. For the patristic medieval tradition, nature is created is a creative participatory reality that signifies its creator and possesses a teleological order. For Spinoza, nature simply yields empirical data within the linear time-space continuum. So there's a lot of theological jargon in there. But uh, basically, the focus changed and shifted from uh, the big story, the big picture, and the theological meaning of the Bible to encounter God, to know Jesus through it. It shifted from that being the end goal to uh, the Bible and its history and uh you know, almost like a, a secularization of the Bible kind of occurred out of that. That's that's what he kind of means. It kind of 
takes the sacredness and the, the holiness off it and reduces it to just another book to be analyzed empirically and only. So it's cutting off one half of our being. You know, it's cutting off the spiritual side of, of the text too, which the main point of the text, like we said, was to know God through it, you know, in God's spirit. So those developments in Western thinking kind of produced a cold academic approach to scripture, which, you know, it, it helps in certain aspects, like to know the history of the text, to know the grammatical, uh, social, rhetorical you know, aspects of the text. You know, it's more analytical and it's more done that way. But we've cut off this kind of spiritual vitality of the Bible uh, from academia sometimes. That's kind of filtered down through the church. Um, and he goes on and says, and says, the notion that the Bible can't perhaps even, uh, perhaps even ought to be read without metaphysical assumptions seems to be seriously mistaken. Today's heirs of Hobbes and Spinoza, for all their clamoring about objectivity, are unable to escape metaphysical assumptions when interpreting scripture. Even when we're not aware of it, we still do metaphysics. And so Borisma is critiquing those people that just treat the text like it's a dry thing to just analyze empirically. He's saying, uh, you know, that's, you know, we're, we're all doing metaphysics. Like we all have a big picture idea of whatever it is we're looking into and analyzing, even if we're not aware of it. So if we approach the Bible like it's only just historical information without any spiritual vitality or any theological meaning, uh, we come to it with that assumption. But if we come to the text and assume that God wants to speak to us through it, God can do that because he honors our free will and stuff. Um, so our assumptions about the Bible play just as crucial a role as anything else. Uh, but but being more true to the Bible itself, the the ancient world viewed the text as something to encounter God. It was as spiritual as it is historical. And so there isn't really a divide. That divide started with Hobbes, Spinoza, and all those guys. And so just the whole point of saying that was just <laughs> that that these, these things kind of hinder us from hearing God sometimes if we have these assumptions. We have to assume that he wants to speak to us through. We have to assume that the text is just as spiritual as it is factual, you know. Um, that's the idea, because it's the text itself that conveys God's voice, and God's voice is what gives us nourishment and sustains us spiritually. Uh, we approach the text to encounter Jesus. The scripture is the cup, and Christ is the water that nourishes us. We talked about that a, a little bit ago. If we approach it only as academic, we will miss the point of Scripture, not read it as how Christians have throughout the ages, uh, which is what Borisma was talking about. The, you know, during the medieval period, the pre-modern period, the, the, late, uh, the late antiquity uh, era, you know, the, the early church read it in a certain way. They read it you know, knowing that God would meet them in the, in the text. Uh, Borisma quotes Kevin Van Hooser, in regards to reading and interpreting scripture. Because biblical texts are ultimately concerned with the reality of God, readers must have a similar theological interest. Borzmo continues, The text refers beyond itself to the God who reveals himself in and through the biblical text. So this is the way the early church read the Bible. They came to it uh, knowing that it's about God, and God speaks through it still to us. And so they had open hearts and open minds to whatever it would be God would say. And they're always looking for Jesus in the text. That's another key. Uh, why, how does the text communicate Christ? And those, those are kind of the issues that we're talking about. Okay, so we're going to move into like more of a practical aspect now of 
of how to encounter God in the Bible. Uh, we know that we need to know the context in order to receive the nourishment spiritually of Christ, who is the water in the cup. And that comes through what the Bible talks about uh, in terms of meditation. Like we, in the in the West, we think meditation and we think of like, you know, Buddhist monks or something. We think of people saying, you know, empty yourself of everything that, uh, you know, like all thought and all whatever. And that's not the biblical idea of meditation at all. Biblical meditation, you know, is is given as a, as a commandment and a blessing. Uh, but it has to do with filling our hearts and minds with God. It isn't about emptying anything, you know. So that the whole like, you know, chanting Aum or something isn't what Christians mean by meditation. By meditation, we mean thinking and pondering and letting God's words permeate through us, you know, like food. Because uh, the Bible speaks of meditating. Uh, one of the key passages is Psalm 1 verse 1 through 2, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So there's the imagery of getting that word in us and letting it permeate all through us. I have a friend who's a Messianic Jew, and he was telling me a long time ago that he, uh, you know, he, he had some, some sinful habits he was trying to break in his life. And uh, what he would do is he would he would meditate on the scriptures, and he kind of told me that in a sense what he did was he got the scriptures in him, and it it took over in a sense uh, a part of who he is. Like he got it into him, like he was eating vitamins or something. Like he's eating his vitamins every day. He was taking his nutrition, and it just made him better. So when Christians talk about meditating on scripture, that's what we mean. We're not talking about. Uh, this, you know, saying, um, you know, we're talking about getting the word in us and, and encountering God in that because his presence is in the, the things he says. Uh, and, you know, there's other ways to encounter God, you know, like through worship and through other things. But in this specific context of hearing his voice in scripture, this is kind of what we mean. Like the bread and butter of hearing God in scripture is through meditation on scripture. Uh, the word for meditation in Hebrew is Hagah which according to William Holliday's lexicon means to read in an undertone, to ponder by talking to oneself. So it has the connotation of muttering quietly and after actively pondering and praying the scriptures back to God. So scriptures become a prayer. It's becoming this thing I ruminate on and I kind of mutter under my breath. Because remember, the, the culture of the Old Testament, most people didn't read. And most people didn't have books, you know, like... Uh, Torah scrolls and things like that were very costly and only scribes kept them and had them. Like the common person didn't have a Bible. So what they would do is they would they would memorize it. They would hear the scriptures taught to them and read aloud to them in the synagogue or at the temple or whatever. And they would just internalize those things by muttering them, by you know chewing them in a sense and making that a part of them. So they would think and, and be consumed by thoughts about the scriptures, about what God was saying. Uh, so meditation in the biblical sense is to fill the mind and heart with thoughts about God it is a form of prayer. Christians meditate, Christian meditation is never about emptying ourselves, which is what we, blah, what we just talked about. <laughs> Sorry guys. So it's a form of prayer. It's, it's, uh, you know, I was talking to a friend and he was having trouble, uh, you know, kind of hearing God in the Bible. So I was asking him like, you know, Hey, how are you approaching the Bible? Uh, he was, he just wanted to do study, 
by itself, and he wasn't really feeling God's presence or, or encountering God's presence by doing that. And I was like, well, maybe first you should approach the Bible uh, in worship and in prayer, and then study. You know, to connect with God first, then start studying and doing all the, you know, those kind of things. Like, you know, sure, memorize scripture, get the context, do all that, but do it prayerfully. Do it, do it as an act of worship and devotion. And you'll, you'll encounter God in that because study and memorization is, is, is a spiritual act of worship just like meditation is. You know, actually meditation is kind of a form of those things. Um, so, you know, if, if anyone's out there struggling with that, you know, be encouraged. Excuse me. Whoa. I drank a LaCroix before this, so I'm kind of burping a little bit over here. Okay, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Why do I meditate? Because I am a Christian. Therefore, every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's word and holy scripture is a lost day for me. I can only move forward with certainty upon the firm ground of the word of God. And as a Christian, I learn to know the holy scripture in no other way than by hearing the word preached and by prayerful meditation. So that's coming from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if anyone knows anything about Bonhoeffer, he was killed by the Nazis for trying to to be a part of a plot to kill Hitler. Uh, Bonhoeffer had an underground seminary where he would teach, you know, dissident Christians because the state church at, 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 of Germany at the time was in bed with the Nazis. And so Bonhoeffer, what Bonhoeffer did was, he's like, you know, we're going to have an underground church called the Confessing Church. And it wasn't just Bonhoeffer, there's other leaders too, but he was a, a pivotal leader. And he had an underground seminary at a, at a certain town in Germany, but he would, every morning he would have all his students spend a half hour meditating on scripture and he would give them different things to meditate on like different passages and stuff. But to Bonhoeffer meditation meant so much that he made that a, a main practice, a spiritual discipline of his students. That was like their bread and butter. And so it's, so the biblical idea is more meditation involves our whole being engaging with God is ruminating and pondering with God. So it's not, you know, just thinking facts about God. It's it's pondering the scriptures with him in his presence as being alerted to the presence of Jesus in our hearts. So we're doing it with him and less like objectively without him, which is how a lot of us approach the Bible. We just, you know, I'm reading it, blah, 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 but I'm not engaging with God in my reading of it, so to speak. I'm not asking God, God, what do you think about this? You know, it's not a prayerful conversation. It's just... Uh, you know, God bombard me with facts, you know? And so it's, it's a whole heart attitude. That's what we're kind of talking about when, when we're talking about meditation here. So like, and I'll read the text sometimes. And if I'm, you know, if I usually spend some time, uh, you know, doing some prayer before. Uh, so when I read the text, I'm at a place where I'm at peace and rest. So when something pops out in the text, I hear God speak it to me. Like it, there's life in it and there's something that changes inwardly in me when I see it, you know? So it's almost like we're looking for treasure and a, a key aspect of meditation isn't to just read like, you know, the book of Luke, you know, in one sitting, it's to focus on a little bit and to get the nutrition out of it. Like you're savoring a, a well-cooked meal or something. That's more of what meditation is. Um, I'm going to read a, a kind of a lengthy passage from a, uh, this guy named Bruce Demarest, you know, he wrote a book called Satisfy Your Soul, and he's talking about a practical way to meditate. So I want to make it practical, too. I talked a lot about some of the theology and philosophy behind stuff, um, but I know that for all of us that we're growing into becoming everyday saints, 
and we need like pr you know, practical stuff of how to do it because I'm more my personality is more geared towards theory and towards all this other stuff but that doesn't always help us <laughs> so I want to have a uh, practical stuff too so he uh, Bruce is talking here about you know the tradition of biblical meditation in the church um, and there's an, an old term for it called lectico divina, which is Latin for uh, sacred reading. And so, you know, this is more of a, you know, historically been a Catholic practice. But, you know, Bruce is a Protestant, and, uh, you know, I am too, and a lot of us are. Uh, there's quite a few of us, I guess. So it's, it's sort of, a, even though it's been a medieval Catholic practice, it, it basically is something all Christians everywhere have done, and it's been used in different forms and, and different words to describe the same practice. I mean, Wesley did it, Edwards did it, you know, Pentecostals have done it. Reformed people have done it. Orthodox people do it. All of us meditate on Scripture, the people that really grow in Christ. There's just different words for it. But he's using a particular example called Lectico Divina, which is the same thing, but this is more of the Catholic, you know, medieval form of it. So he says, The method of biblical meditation known as Lectico Divina, sacred reading, has been practiced by Christians since the 4th century. In recent decades, growing numbers of Protestant Christians have taken up Lectico in their spiritual prophet. This exercise, otherwise known as reading with the heart, represents a holistic approach to biblical meditation. Lectico Divina proceeds in four stages. In the language of the centuries, they are Lectico, which is reading, Meditatio, which is discursive meditation, Oratio, which is effective prayer, and Contemplatio, which is contemplation. As preparation for Lectico, yield all your cares and concerns to the Lord. Invite the Holy Spirit, who inspired the Word, to illuminate its message to your heart. So it's, a, it's he's talking about inviting the Holy Spirit into what you're doing. And that's a key to encountering God. God waits for us to give him an invitation a lot of the times because he honors our free will. He's, he's good like that. Um, and here's some practical steps that uh, Bruce DeMartis, I think I'm saying his name right, Demarist is giving us. So he says, here are some steps to guide you. First, select a scripture passage. You might begin with a psalm, a biblical prayer, or a discourse of Jesus, or perhaps one of Jesus' rich parables. Take the attitude that God has given this scripture for your spiritual nourishment. With a listening heart, read aloud the biblical text slowly and deliberately. When you alight upon a word, a phrase, or a sentence that speaks to your heart, pause in your reading. And so he's saying, slow down, you know, when we want to meditate on the Bible, we have to slow down. So using the Lord's Prayer as an example, instead of running through it, you know, at 50 miles an hour, slow down, you know, our Father, be intentional and, and say it to the Lord and say it with the Lord. That's usually what I try to do, um, instead of making it just like a rote thing to say. And he goes on, second, meditate or mull over the word or words that captured your attention. Listen to, ponder, and savor the love message from God until it settles in your soul. Through reverent reflection, allow the sacred text to become your spiritual meat and drink. Permit it to nurture, challenge, or test something in you. And so he's he's talking about you know chaga, that biblical word, a Hebrew word for uh, for ruminating, chewing, like get that into you, let it work throughout you, like you know. Jesus talks about how like yeast permeates dough. It's the same kind of idea. Like, let that yeast that the scriptures get in you, you know, and don't let it go. You know, don't just 
say our father and just skip ahead to Revelation 12 or something, you know, <laughs> like stay on that and get, you know, stay with that for a while, you know, keep doing it for a while, get into a rhythm of, of prayer and engaging with the Lord through that. Make it a prayer. And, you know, sometimes prayer involves repetition and that's not a, a you know, uh, it's not a legalistic thing. If we're, because, you know, there's lots of worship songs that repeat the same chorus again and again. If you listen to Hillsong songs, they say the same stuff again and again because it's a form of meditation. Uh, you know, surprise, you know, Protestants, it's a form of meditation, you know what I mean? Uh, it's not like it's out of a context, you know, out of context, you know, for us to do that. It's uh, it's an act of worship. So if you have a problem with repeating scripture to meditate on, just think of it like you're singing some Hillsong chorus, you know, <laughs> maybe that'll help some of us, you know. Uh, he goes on. Third, return to return the scripture you have just read to the Father by praising him for its work in you. Talk to the Lord about your reading. Your petition might take the form of calm reasoning or an impassioned plea. Thank the Father for the grace that works through his spirit and the word. Ask him to make experiential other biblical truths that have not yet found res- residence in your heart. Petition the Lord for the grace to obey his nourishing revelation. The final stage of Letico devolves, involves resting in the Lord's presence. This is an act of simply being there with God, and it acknowledges that he is the agent of spiritual growth. Resting in God's real presence has been called the prayer of simple devotion. That's kind of what, like Brother Lawrence did a lot, you know. Simply being present to God and loving communion serves as the exclamation point to the, med- the meditative moment. So that's, that's kind of Bruce DeMaris breaking down meditation. Uh, it's, it's slowing down. It's focusing on a certain passage, like the Lord's Prayer, uh, you know, John three sixteen, whatever it is, Psalm 20, uh, part of Psalm twenty three, like whatever gives nourishment in life. All Scripture does, but in in this kind of context, you want something that is really going to uh, give you some some something tasty, you know, like look for something really like a real leafy green that you want, you know, which speaks to you right now, like meditating on like the genealogies in the old Testament isn't really going to give you that, you know, but, uh, meditating on the Lord's prayer will, because everything you need for that day is in the prayer. And so that's, what he's talking about slow down with it, chew it, let it speak to you, let God speak to you through it, say it as a prayer. And then when you're done kind of with the process of doing this, you may even want to do it, you know, between five to 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever, but spend some time to just be quiet and at rest with the Lord. You know, it's, a, it's called reposing, just be at peace. And you know, by that time, you'll probably be in his presence because you're focused on the voice of God and the presence of God. That That's the key to kind of getting there is the scriptures. A key to getting into God's presence is through worship and the scripture. And so when you, you do these things, it's a form of that. And so when you're there, enjoy God's presence. You know, contemplation is sometimes a result of, of meditation. And so we meditate, uh, but the contemplation is more like God's infusing his grace and infusing his presence into you in that moment. Like you're very aware, you become very aware of God and his nearness in that moment. And you just sort of rest and enjoy that. That's what contemplation is. And I think a lot of us have been there. Some of us haven't never, have never been there, but that's for all of us. God's presence is our reward because he's our God, you know, and it's accessible to everyone. And so that's what meditation is. So along with, you know, studying the Bible, knowing the facts, knowing the context, 
meditate on it too. Get that spiritual nourishment out of it that feeds your soul. That's how we grow. And I'm pretty convinced that renewal is coming to the church, but it's going to come by us finding our first loves again. Our first love, sorry, our first love again, you know, which is Jesus. Uh, and we, we encounter him and know him through things like this, through meditating on the Bible, through parts of the Bible. And when that happens and our culture can change, people's lives are changed when they encounter Christ through us. Uh, no one's going to change by us yelling at them and telling them that they're wrong, you know, People change by encountering the love of God, and they give up their sinful ways. They give up those unholy things, and they come home. So that's the idea. And so we come home every day when we spend time and meditate with the Lord, because we all have to come home all the time, because it's easy to stray. You know, this world is, in a sense, uh, very, uh, uh, very capable of doing that to us, you know. So uh, that's basically the podcast for today. So God bless you in your meditation. God bless you as you as you nourish yourself in His Word, and uh, I recommend hey you know maybe buy Satisfy Your Soul by Bruce Demarest if you need some inspiration. There's lots of other resources out there. Uh, there's tons of them. We can try to put something on the blog like different resources and stuff people should check out. But uh, thanks for listening. Uh, God bless you all.